Hello and welcome to this week's Scottish Independence podcast. I'm Fiona McGregor from the Indie Life podcast team and this week my colleague Marlene and I interview special guest Jerry Hassan. Jerry is uh, an author and academic. He's just got a new book out called Scotland Rising, The Case for Scottish Independence, which couldn't be more timely given where we are right now and just in time for Christmas too. Jerry's a fairly well-kent face, you know, as a political commentator um, on Scottish politics, professor and social change at uh, Glasgow Caledonian University, and uh, he's written he's written other books. So this is the new one, Scotland Rising. Welcome to our special guest for this month, Jerry Hassan. Perfectly timed to have you on because we're just turning our thoughts to Christmas mm. and you've got a book out. Would that make a good Christmas present? <laughs> thank you um, and thank you for having me. I, I wrote a book, Scotland Rising, the, the case for independence, just out in the last month or so. Um, and really, I wanted to write a book. That, there aren't many books on the case for independence and I wanted to, post-2014, post-Brexit, where we are now, write a book that wasn't just for the partisans or just for the passionate and the committed. It's for those groups as well, but it's also for folk who are um, really interested in this issue but want want to know more about the, the argument, the case for independence, and really to to aid the kind of both the debate for independence and and the kind of debate about the, the future of, of, of Scotland. Um, and in that, I'm trying to acknowledge there's many, many different possibilities of the future. There's many different types of Scotland and voters and so on, uh, and try and contribute towards you know a better debate in that. Excellent. So in fact, it would make a good Christmas present for somebody who's mm -hmm. not made their mind up yet. <laughs> I, I noticed that when you start off, you definitely put things into a bit of historical perspective. Mm. That, uh, which I, I, I really appreciated and I, I had lived through quite a lot of that historical perspective. So why did you choose to do that? Well, that's that's again a really interesting question that, um, like a lot of people, um, I mean, this is something that's true of most of Scotland that has come to independence. People have come to it through being at one point either not for it or being agnostic or uh, undecided or so on. And in that, that shift of, you know, a, a huge part, half or plus of half of Scotland coming to independence, there's been a set of stories, simplistic stories about how we've all ended up here, which is kind of reduced to, you know, Margaret Thatcher, the 1980s, the poll tax, you know, it was grim up north and, and we didn't vote for them. And, and while there's quite a degree of truth in that, there's also a whole set of other deeper stories as well, not, not just about the decline of Britain, but about, this is what I tried to get into, there's a much, much rich, richer tapestry that is about how Britain began to change and Scotland began to change in the 50s and 1960s. And this isn't just about politics, it's about, as I try and get into it, it's about culturally, it's about it's about um, the songs people sang, um, it's about a youth culture, um, it's about generational change, it's about a decision at the end of the 1950s for the American nuclear uh, deter deterrent to come to Scotland and in the British to government to position its independent nuclear deterrent in Scotland as, as well. And all these factors contributed to a different set of ideas of Scotland emerging and then people saying they wanted that to be then a democratic idea, they wanted it to be something accountable to here. And so there's a richer set of reasons, and, and, and this is important to independence in that it means it's not just solvable by the if, like, you know, the United Kingdom suddenly worked out and the last 40 years were reversed. There's still a richer set of stories um, going on informing this debate. The social attitudes survey that came out recently, mm. in fact, the last few, it does tend to suggest that we're moving on different paths 
and you know what is currently we lump together as the rest of the UK and Scotland seem to be on very different trajectories socially and, and every generation seems to be you know that's compounding that it, it's quite fascinating to observe yeah, these, these are long-term shifts there, there's generational mm. shifts in that and then one of the things I get into in the book is I've just you know sort of alluded to is the, the idea ideas of Scotland as in the plural which is always something you know evolving being contested never completely ending because you it's a nation discussing itself and its future that has shifted dramatically in the last 50, 60 years since the 50s, and then in the last 10 years. And one of the big things is that, and again, it's something some independent supporters don't recognise the huge success here. 10 years ago, or pre-2011, to be accurate, in the SNP's you know, majority victory there, independence was not a mainstream idea in Scotland. Independence has come in from the cold, come into being one of the mainstream, if not the mainstream ideas, uh, idea of how Scotland thinks about its future, and an idea with the support of over half a people. And even within you know, the whole of Scotland, there's a, there's a broader, richer debate about what self-government means, um, our relationship with the other nations of these isles, etc., that is beyond independence. But that shift is, is something which looks like it's fundamental, uh, long-term and, and irreversible. Yeah. From about early 2000s, for mm. six or seven years, I was living down in Shropshire and you know, so the Holyrood Parliament had mm. been on the go for a, a couple of years by the time I was down mm. there. And, and when I was back home visiting, I, I just started to notice quite a well, I thought it was a significant shift. People, people said something about the Parliament, what they meant was Holyrood. Mm. If, they, if they talked about the capital, what they meant was Edinburgh. And, you know, I wasn't in a particularly, you know, political set of you yes, know, friends yes. and relatives. That was just like something had shifted. There's a, there's a very interesting chart done by The Economist magazine in about 2011. This is, this is anecdotal and a bit, a bit lighthearted. And they did a study of the UK, of the nations and regions of the UK. By, this is when landlines were still used, phone-wise. But who spoke to who telephone-wise across the nations and regions of the UK? And it found that Scotland was the nation stroke region and the nation that spoke most to itself. And also it was the nation, etc., where the most number of phone calls to London over the previous decade had collapsed. <laughs> and I, I remember at the time thinking, this is one of the things I tried to go over to some independent folk in terms of the success of it. But Scotland is already quasi-independent. Scotland, how it thinks of itself, of which there are again many Scotlands, it's not an essentials one Scot, is already partially independent. And that's one way in which we're not just a nation, because a nation's an abstract, we are a social community, a social space, a communicative space, and how we make sense of that and what we do with it is what's really important. And one way in that is like, you know, the way we talk to each other there, just as an example, just what you were saying, is that's a kind of semi-independence, the yeah. decline of Scottish London conversations on the phone. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm saying it like heartedly in a way, you know, but it's, it's indicative of something, you know. <laughs> yeah. but at one point, if you'd have stood at King's Cross Station and said, hands up if you're Scottish, half yeah, of them... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. During that time that I was living down there, I mean, so many people would sort of say things like, oh, you Scots, I mean, you sort of know who you are, don't you? And, and you've got all your songs and and, and I mean, it might just boil down to songs and bagpipes that were being used as examples. But actually, they were pointing to, you know, a sort of social sense of social cohesion, weren't they? And, and in comparison, not feeling that they, there was something similar for them from the point of view of being English. I mean, I, I mean, I always wondered if that was really correct, but it was obviously what people felt. Yeah.
Yeah. We went, when I was reading this book, um, I, I, I reread a book by, um, again, it's great to read some of these really rich, researched uh, pre-Thatcher um, books on Scotland's question. There's an academic called Jack Brand at Strathclyde University, and he wrote this book called The Nationalist, Nationalist Movement in Scotland. So it's beyond the SNP, it's beyond independence, but the bigger self-government issue. And one of the things, this, this was published in 1978, so it's amazing to read a book so rich. I think there's no reference to Margaret Thatcher or um, you know Jim Sullivan or something. And uh, he has this. He get, he gets into the culture and the songs we 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 sing in public events in the 1950s Scotland into 1960s Scotland. When you went to people went to football matches, the national team, national men's team, obviously at this point, um, or the national men's rugby team, people sang "God Save the Queen" yeah. and they they honoured and you know were deferential to it. And then slowly at the football, they began to boo that, and they began to sing you know uh, for the Scotland and so on. The football authorities were embarrassed by this, and eventually they gave up. And and Flower of Scotland replaced um, God Save the Queen at football, and then you know at, at, at the rugby. And what he's saying is that this is this is deeply symbolic. This is deeply symbolic of a society saying something about its relationship to monarchy, to Britishness, how it sees Scottishness, and it's and it's a. A profoundly true point. The songs we sing in public spaces really matter. And this is one of the things I've tried to go over in the book. Yes, the politics matter, but we should never just be thinking about politics in terms like you know SNP or the Greens or whatever our party politics. There's something much richer going on here, which is thus in a way much more powerful. One of the things that's worried people like myself about the SNP is the SNP used to have a very rich tradition with in relationship to cultural nationalism, and particularly when they were a smaller party, and even in the, in the sense of Alex Salmond uh, post 2007. And in recent years, as they've become more and more comfortable in office, that cultural nationalism has, has slipped off the agenda. And how, how we represent ourselves, because it, it links into public policy, it links into broadcasting, it links into all sorts of, not just those soft cultural issues, those are really integral issues to how we see ourselves, represent ourselves, and a, and a broader, more generous version of independence. Yeah. What would be an example of something that's maybe just slipped off the SNP's way of doing things? Or, um, well, how 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 we think of broadcasting would be a good example. How you think of um, uh, the, the Scottish public sphere of say mass media is thought about. Um, I mean, lots of small countries all around the world in terms of population size. Norway would be a good example. There's all sorts of discussions and programmes about how to support mass media in a globalised world where we're facing these huge, you know, huge gathering platforms of power, you know. And it's it's post-2007, the SNP had a broadcasting commission, which is how the BBC Scotland channel came about. There was something else done on print media that then actually didn't lead anywhere beyond the report. But it's those sort of things. Yeah, how, okay. how we see ourselves yeah. represented is fundamental to people then understanding who they are, because you see yourself back, you know. Yeah. And, and if you don't, as has happened on lots of BBC and STV platforms, there's a kind of like, you know, cultural democratic deficit at work there. And, and a lot of people, when you speak about it, they do, they do feel it profoundly, this, our absence of the Scotland we live in on our TV screens. Yeah. I think that's hugely important, isn't it? Mm. And I mean, we're we're looking at the moment about 90% of our TV and, and print media is all provided by the country next door. So yeah. how it could possibly reflect the day-to-day -day balance yeah. even that's current, even if you took the 50-50 split, is definitely not represented in in the media that we get. But I suppose the um, the other element of that is how many people are still reading the papers and how many people are still watching BBC. Yeah. And certainly in my 
son's generation, they wouldn't go near a newspaper. No, so I would say you're 100% right there. What, what we still face in the era of declining, you know, uh, print media sales, because of 24-7 broadcast media, what we then face is a strange paradox of like, the, the Daily Mail. Sorry to mention the Daily Mail. Here, but as all newspapers sales decline on print versions is that they, they, they've got a, a bigger sort of like footprint influence into 24-7 broadcast media because of the, the thin nature of economics of that. So like, you know, the way the Daily Mail and even the Express to an extent and the Daily Telegraph, their agenda pushes BBC, Sky News, etc. So you've got that insidious to score on. Yeah. And if people don't think it matters in Scotland, because obviously it does, but it matters and just give one quick example, is that the, the, the Brexit debate was something that clearly was not a central issue in Scottish society and, and Scottish public opinion. Yet, because of the nature of that media and then broadcast media following print media, we ended up actually a 62 38 split in a Scottish opinion was in 2016 was not an accurate reflection of Scottish opinion. Scottish opinion was much, much more pro European, but we were dragged into yeah. a Eurosceptic debate and thus had to put up with, you know, being part of that. Why yeah. didn't we? Does harm to us, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was the Brexit side of things, I think, that, that broadened us out from being a Scottish society to really that sort of open and welcoming, if you're here, you're Scottish thing. Yeah. I don't remember that kind of narrative particularly. I think it was there, but mm. I, don't, I don't remember that being part of the narrative before mm. Brexit. But after Brexit, and particularly from the First Minister standing on the steps the next day saying, you're all Scottish, this is your home, and it's a very nice part of our sort of inclusive welcoming style. It feels new to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If we turn to your book, so one of the approaches that, that you're saying, just yes, it's important for us to understand the positive arguments um, for independence, you know, if, if we're independent supporters, but it's also important for us to understand the kind of concerns and arguments that unionists hold and why they hold them. So then I noticed you give seven uh, sort of arguments in favour of independence and seven uh, arguments or at least the concerns that, that, that unionists had. And, and what struck me was that the pro-indie ones look very, you know, principial. I read them and thought, oh, that's the kind of nation, that's the kind of country I want to live mm -hmm. in. They're quite principial. And, and the pro-union ones come over as being much more, well, specific, but but practical. What made you do it that way? And, and, and you know, do you see any way in which those two particular lists would play out once we do get into a, you know, a proper mm. campaigning mode? The reason behind my thinking there, right, was, was, was really straightforward, dead simple. As somebody who knows, uh, obviously lots of people support independence, but quite a few people who are, you know, either anti-indie or sceptical. One refrain you hear on either side is, there's no, from pro-union people, there's no case for independence. There's no case for independence um, that, that, that works, that makes sense. I hear that. And then you hear from lots, lots of uh, pro-indie people, there is no case left for the union. And and I don't think either of those views are very either helpful or, or honest, because the, the, the first premise is, in any politics, understand the nature of your opponents. That's that's the first thing. And, and, I, and I draw from, actually, I can't remember a quote in the book on this, but Robert, Robert McNamara was... Um, Secretary of Defence yeah. under Kennedy and yeah. um, LBJ, and obviously involved in several, you know, involved in the Vietnam War and many, you know, huge mistakes. And he reflected afterwards where he said, what America did was, and, and he did as well, they dehumanised their opponents. And he said, never, never in any situation dehumanise your opponents. 
always try and empathize with them. Put yourself in their shoes. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying I manage this completely, but I do think, well, there's a case for independence. Obviously, the book makes it this clear. There is work to be done. There's serious work, thought, you know, detail, the philosophy and outlook. But there is a case for the union. And my take on it is that case for the union is still there. It's partly, in some cases, a little bit of a not proven verdict <laughs> in the sense that there's people <laughs> who, who are not for India at the moment, but who are getting well disposed towards it. That was self-evident in 2014. But the case for the union is, is still still there. That means this may be a shocking idea to some people, but if the union were to massively reform itself democratically, economically and socially, then that argument would have more traction potentially. It's not a dead argument. And um, that's what I was trying to go over. It is, as I say, getting weaker you know, day by day, week by week, hour by hour, as we're speaking for obvious reasons. But it won't, might not always be a straightforward linear path to its you know, decline or, or, or you know, demise. And so that's what I wanted to get over, that people need to understand that, that it's not, you, you know the way some parts of independence think about people who are still pro-union, it's either they're deluded or they're brainwashed or they only watch the BBC or, you know, read the Daily Mail. And there are other reasons that, like there are many versions of yes, there are many versions of no. And indeed, somebody I quote in the book, a good friend of mine made the argument several years ago, and it was a brilliant way of saying this shit, there's no such people as no voters. There are only people that voted no. And it's and, and not thinking of people as no voters, but thinking of people who vote no is an entirely different way of doing things. It's just like I try, as you probably noticed in this, this phraseology here, I don't equate all people that vote no with being unionists, just like I don't think of all people who voted yes as being Scottish nationalists. Now, Alex Cole Hamilton, you know, Scottish Lib Dem leader, loves to go on, I mean, ad nauseum about all all people. Someone knows all people who are pro-independence are Scottish nationalists. And as I've put back to him, but you are a pro-union party, but you argue that you are not nationalists, not unionists, because unionism is a form of nationalism. You argue you're federalists, but by your own logic, you're trying to label other folk you would be a nationalist. And and that's um, that's something I really try and that get out of in the book because of politics of just our nationalism better than your nationalism, which again is part of our independence debate, is is not one that reaches out to as many people or engages as many folk as, as it should do. Just to follow on that, from, from the, the list of democratic argument, economic justice, social justice, psychological dimension, endurance of the British Empire, the UK is not a modern country. So um, I, I don't know if it, people watching are, are their, their ears pricking up because mine did when I especially when I want, went the endurance of the British Empire and the UK not being a, a modern a modern country. I had one pro-union person said to me who was um, uh, going to review the book and it's somebody very prominent. He said to me privately, he said, I can't understand this argument you're making about the British uh, state being an empire state. And I said, well, it's an argument actually it's become increasingly centre stage in a large part of mainstream historian with writers like David Edgerton and so on who wrote a great book about the decline of the British nation a couple of years ago. Brit- and he meant British nation as obviously Britain, uh, you know, United Kingdom's not a nation, but he meant Britain as nation as an idea. And he's talking about the failed the failed attempts of Labour to make a different yeah. kind of British nation. Um, and it's interesting that uh, it was a point I only came across by accident that is, is germane to this, is um, uh, the British Empire was only legally abolished on the 1st of January 1983. 
Um, and that's when the term colony was taken out of British law by the Thatcher government oh. in the, Nas the Nationality Act of 1981 that came into effect on, on that date. And so we are away just over a month from this date, a way to have the 40th anniversary of this, the end legally of the British Empire, which will be a, a moment which will be unmarked by anyone um, and uh, you know the British political class, the Tories obviously, but but Labour as well, and and it's it's just one small reason, but the, the, about why that empire state continued. The deeper reason about empire state is that this was a state formed to do military conquest, uh, militarism at mm, home, yeah. to to sustain the the global empire, and it has never subsequently made the break. Um, in any any way to 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 leave that aside uh, to 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 you know to leave that in the past and and obviously it's got undemocratic elements at home it's got elements of feudalism and so on etc and so it's an argument that now is central to a large part of history mainstream history about how people understand the UK and again it really it really matters in the here and now of how United Kingdom is misgoverned this is not an abstract this is this is why things like you know the last couple of months of the you know terrible state of the Tory party and uh, disintegration of how they govern the UK happens how they can get away with things um and and think they can get away with things it's also a lot of why Brexit happened as well I mm -hmm. think it's that parking after we want to be back to in the days when we were a, an empire and a power and and this sense of loss a couple of shows ago we played a little clip from Rob Shorthouse I don't know if you know him he was involved in the 2014 and he was summing up how they had won 2014 was that they realized that people were going to make their decision based on risk and uncertainty. Um, so that was what they played on. Yeah. And at the same time, I used to, but you know, the nudge philosophy, Thaler mm -hmm. and Sunstein, and there's a concept in there about loss aversion, how people are loss averse. And yeah. you have to want something new twice as much as mm. you want to let go of something old. And mm. it just strikes me that a lot of the independence mm. um, movement discussion, I'm not sure we really take as much um, account of people's loss aversion in the way we discuss it. And when we're talking about our vision for a new Scotland, mm. which is a great thing to talk about, People who are making that decision are also going, but what am I going to lose? What am I going to lose? Absolutely. And if what they're going to lose, they see as more than what they stand to gain. You have to want something twice as much yeah. as you're willing to give something up. And uh, it just struck me looking at your list of the um, the positives for the union are all on that visionary side. But the, the negatives are all in things we're going to lose if we give it up. And I thought that we need some way of counteracting that argument or, or telling the story better. So what we lose is bad things to do with the UK yeah. and what we gain is good things to do with Scotland. So uh, I, I could agree, I agree with every single word of that, that risk is inevitable in change. And and, and it's obviously in, in, in the world we live in as well, but it's inherent in a project like independence. And and in that risk, um, it's an issue, there is an issue of how you manage it, et cetera. But you've also said 100% correctly, in that there's also the element of loss. And one of the things I, I, I've long worried about in terms of part of the independence argument is part of, a, of the independence coalition community wants to because they got there early or because they because they have a version of scottishness that is kind of monocultural or a singular identity you know scottishness alone or scottishness maybe with europeanness as well they then want to say it will be a scottishness that will be kind of purified of britishness 
I regard that as a terrible argument. I mean, it's fine for people to say that they're, they're Scottish and don't want to be British. That's not what I'm, I'm not I've got any problem or challenge with that. That's entirely a legitimate view. But if people say as a, as a political project, they want the country to embody just Scottishness and not have any British dimension in it and, and people to be comfortable in the British. It, it makes part of the independence more of an existential set of identities than it has to be. Mm -hmm. Because, again, despite the fact that we have become more Scottish through all these you know, surveys we've talked about um, in the last 40 years, and you know, 90% plus of people in Scotland feel Scottish, it's also true when you ask people, do they feel Scottish and British, 60% plus, 70% plus of Scots say they feel Scottish and British. Again, the, the gradient's heading more towards Scottishness, but a majority of people feel British. Yeah. So if you want to pose it as like this pure version of Scottishness, that someone kind of expunges, you know, expels imperial, nasty, reactionary Britishness and all that, then you're, you're setting up an argument to, to, to say to part of Scotland, we want to take away or we dishonour part of your identity. And I just say to lots of independent people, why would you pose it that way? Because because it's perfectly all right for you to say you want to be Scottish and not feel British, but to lots of people, this is a part of their identity. And and if you look just close to home, Ireland, which had a much more obviously brutal, horrendous experience at the at the hands of the British state than Scotland, you know, we were we were junior partners in this, is is that Ireland went through a similar debate when it became independent in the 20s about the role of British identity and how to try and like reflect that. So they might not have wanted it, but it's part of us and we don't want to deny that. And there's a whole set of cultural discussions as well on that. And if Ireland can do that, I'm pretty sure we can, and it'd be better for us to get ahead of the curve and yeah. have that discussion now than, 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 than allow, allow ourselves to be caricatured by part of ourselves and indeed yeah. by part of our opponents. And, and it struck me this, I, I cite this in the book, it came home to me really earlier this year when I went to a Gordon Brown talk and I was I was on my best behaviour as I sometimes try to be because part of me, you know, I'm, not, I'm only human, you know, but part of me does like to listen to people I disagree with. And so I was listening to Gordon Brown and, and I wrote a reflective piece on it saying, you know, trying to understand them. But he was saying at one point, this point, Scottish independence is all about Scottishness and denying Britishness and it's about anti-Britishness and yeah. anti-Englishness. So I wrote this yeah. thing, this is a caricature, this is like really Gordon Brown somewhere knows better. But what was interesting was that quite a lot of the pro-independence most passionate people said things like, I agree with Gordon Brown, I, I don't like Gordon Brown, blah, 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 but on this point he's right. And I thought that's quite interesting because I didn't realise that the way two parts of the independence argument from different sides coalesce in what is a caricature of the independence uh, argument. And that's something that I think it, it absolutely is about this sense of loss. If you pose it that way, because there won't be still other senses of loss for people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I wonder if um, a way of approaching that might be to sort of reframe Britishness. Mm. And I think one of the things that really annoys me is that whenever you hear one of the um, Westminster politicians talking about the British people want X, you think, well, mm. there is no homogenous group called that who want the same thing. In terms of Britain as an island, I'm quite happy for all four nations of the UK yeah. to become four nations that live on British Isles. It's like being a country in Europe, a country in Britain. Yeah could have the same kind of relationship of neighbours and friends, which is kind of where we want to get to. Um, yeah. And it's almost this misappropriation of Britishness as shorthand for Englishness, or even worse, shorthand for South of English Toryness, which yeah. is causing the problem. I haven't felt politically British for, you know, decades, but, mm -hmm. but in that, um, 
I, my, my cultural Britishness, I mean, there's lots and lots of things that I have grown up with that I feel huge attachment to that are English or English-British um, mm -hmm. from, you know, punk, post-punk, all sorts of rich musical strands, uh, literary writers, etc. And I have, I have long thought that independence will change one's psychological relationship across these aisles and it will thus change your views of some of these things that are in a way part of our common heritage. And I find that a little bit um, both interesting and in some way I still feel a little bit like it's, it's a bit sugary or un unsettling. And, 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 and if, if I reflect on that, I'm thinking, what must that feel when it's taken onto that wider scale for some folk to say, like, you know, as, as I made like in, in the, the point of the seven arguments for the union, th th they are mostly now increasingly defensive and looking into the past. But if you want to deny some of those arguments, for instance, the, what I would call probably the last good story of the United Kingdom of 1940 to 45, I mean, it's, 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 yeah. um, you know, it's gone on too much now. And I use 1940 as the point because obviously that's when France fell. Um, is that that's a, still a rich, powerful um, story? I mean, people like John Friedland in the Guardian have called it the last foundational story of the United Kingdom. I I don't think that's a story that should be done because we because we were voluntarily part of that story. Yeah. We, why would we get that? That's part of us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's, I mean, it's interesting. You know what you say about you know that kind of um, well. I think it's just you know the kind of pure Scottishness kind of story. Uh, mm. I just think that's just sim it's simplistic. I, I, I mean, I also think it's lazy. Almost immediately after the referendum in 2014, there was a YouGov poll of the Scots. So, you know, first of all, they asked, did you vote yes or no? And then they asked, what were your three most important um, reasons for doing that? And, and I remember that for the people who voted no, let's stay within the United Kingdom, one of that was a sense of Britishness, which didn't mean they didn't feel Scottish, yeah, yeah. It just meant that, that that was quite a powerful thing. And when they went delved into that a bit more, yes, what 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 up was people would say, well, we fought for each other. You know, you can't ignore that, can you? That's that's a way for me to put myself into thinking what it might be like for someone who says, no, I want to stay part of the UK, I want to stay part of Britain. If that kind of sense of belonging and yeah. commonality is part of it, then that's one angle that I can get in. And, um, mm. you know, you don't have to kind of belittle that or take that no. away. You can you can go forward from that, can't you? Separatism is obviously like, a, you know, a boohoo word and all that. And But anyone, anyone that knows the history of, of the SNP, obviously, you know, the, the primary force and historically in this argument, the SNP have never been a separatist party. The SNP's versions of self-government and independence have always involved co political cooperation across across the UK, across across the Isles, and indeed in you know, in the 40s, they, they they hankered after an idea of the Commonwealth and Dominion status for Scotland in the way like New Zealand, Australia, and um, Canada, and so on. And and I've long come to this of thinking. I mean, that's not what's you know that's not today's world, but is that clearly the United Kingdom and its history and um, would mean that, I, I think, in a good way, Scottish independence, also there's the, the Irish question is, is rather germane to this, is that they, we would have some elements of political cooperation across these aisles. And mm -hmm. indeed, given given that we, as an independence movement, have a, you know, this is the, this is the idiocy of the Skegsit argument. I just sometimes like, well, not really just, it's just pointless. Scottish independence has so little similarities with Brexit because Brexit, as you know, is the pursuit of this 
pure version of Brexit that is unattainable, about an absolute version of sovereignty by the, the Brexit ultras and so on. Where Scottish independence, particularly the version in 2014, but historically and subsequently, is about a version of very, very shared, fluid sovereignty, not just political cooperation where they say you want to leave Westminster for Brussels, but at every level, it's about an idea of shared sovereignty. And I've long thought we could maybe have a version of our independence that is practically a unique version in the world that has some kinds of political cooperation across these aisles. And as I've thought, because I'm, I'm just naturally attracted to that, and because I'm very you know, concerned about the misgovernance of England, um, which is obviously you know, terrible under Westminster, and you know what could happen post-Scots yeah. independence, is yeah. my friend, the late Bernard Crick, who was George Orwell's biographer, he was great on Scottish self-government because he came to Edinburgh and lived in his latter years. And he phrased the fetishization of parliamentary sovereignty, as he called it, the English ideology. And he said, he said, it's about 30 years ago, he said that the, the, the idiocy of that worldview is, he, his, these are his words, he said, it lost the British ruling elites, the American colonies, it lost them Ireland. And if the way they're heading, it will lose them uh, Scotland. That, that was something we wrote in 1995. Yeah. And I long thought, I'd like to get to that world where we have that, we can share you know, some element of sovereignty while having, you know, our statehood and self-government, but it will depend on an English, not our journey, but the, the, the wider framework will depend on yes. a set of English conversations that, that we can obviously help, but will ultimately will be up to them. And that's, you know, something, given the state of things at the moment, one does have some worries about, you know, there is a version of Scottish independence that happens that then England goes into somewhere even worse than it does now, you know, which would be yeah. a, a travesty for, for the people of England. Yeah, or yeah. it could be the catalyst they need to have a long, hard look at themselves as well. And yeah. having a neighbour back in um, the EU and all, all the rest of it might yeah. might actually be quite helpful. Yeah, I, I, what that brought to mind when you were speaking there just now, Jerry, was just the kind of relationships you see between the Nordic countries. You know, you've got yeah. Norway, Denmark, Sweden, I mean, to certain extent, Iceland, maybe, you know, Faroes and Denmark. But, you know, they've got a shared history, well, in terms of, you know, Norway and Denmark and Sweden, they were once the same country yeah. and, and now they're there, they've got their own identity, yeah. they've got their own, they're, they're yeah. in charge of their own affairs, but they cooperate, you know, yeah. they build, they literally build a bridge, you know, between yeah. one of them. Think of maybe, you know, something like that being able to come yeah. out of the ashes yeah. of, you know, the United Kingdom. God, that'd be fantastic. We need to aid our, you know, compatriots and our neighbours and so on in their conversations that are ultimately English self-government is up to the English but it'd be you know I, I long to live in a set of arrangements where you know we are a modern country making our decisions and I want because because I love England and there's lots of aspects I love about England I'd love to see England articulate and be comfortable being a modern European country maybe not never get back to being in the European Union but but having still a sense that Europe is bigger than the Europe European um, Union project yeah. Mm, yeah indeed we had Tim Rideout on our show last month and he was saying after 50 meetings he'd been to around the country there's really only five arguments that come up every time um so I was going to see if you first of all agree with those as this is your experience too so here's our it's pensions deficit debt EU or EFTA, currency and borders. And he said, if we had convincing, clear, consistent um, responses to those five, that would take away almost all the 
the, the doubts that are there, which he is inevitably talking to groups of, I would say, probably independent supporters in those 50 meetings he's done. But isn't it interesting if it comes down to those five things? There's certainly parallels between that and your list. There's, there's again, so many layers to unpack here. One is like the detail of independence clearly matters and independence has you know, work to do on, on a whole host of issues. These are the primary ones. But I, th I think it's more than that. I think it's one needs to dig deeper because on one hand, and I made this point recently in an essay last week in Prospect magazine, the demand from the pro-union argument for every for kind of future-proof, mm -hmm. future-proof independence offer, which of course cannot be done. Um, on the one hand, it's, it's to try and invite independence into a trap. But what it does do often is there's, there's because of the nature of the multiple crises of the union, is A, a very defensive argument by, by the pro-union forces. And, and secondly, it kind of concedes the argument that the principle of independence is a good thing. And that is not, that is not a frivolous observation because in the 2014 referendum, we found out uh, in the latter stages that soft no voters really like the idea of independence. Why wouldn't they? Uh, uh, because independence had come, come mainstream, as I was saying earlier. It was the defining argument of the independence referendum, obviously. Um, and people liked it as, a, as an idea, but then had various details, which were about the economy, um, Alex Salmon's personality, and, 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 and the issue of, of risk. So it's, it's these, these details do need to be answered. But there's a wider set of things need to be you know, looked at which is, A, you can't future-proof the future completely. And, and we alluded to this earlier, there's a psychological set of arguments under the independence debate, which are about those things like risk, loss, existential identity. And those are, you know, they're, they're equally, equally important, let's just say that. And those need to be understood because there's the long tail, as I was saying earlier, the long tail of this argument that well predates Thatcherism and the experience of you know, Westminster Tory governments. Um, the cultural dimension, even though it's not been kind of nourished by the SNP in recent years, is still clearly a large part of the debate. And, and that sense of like issues, the emotional tapestry this debate brings up, which is often not touched on by the politicians, but is there in people's minds. And one of the things I've tried to go over in this book is that to people who are pro-independence, is to understand the many Scotlands that are out there and the many Scotlands that are beyond the Scotland that independence supporters inhabit. Because just as there's many versions of no, there are many gradations oh. of Scotland. And I go through various focus groups of um, people that didn't vote for 20 odd years that, that I, I'd organised in, in the independence referendum, and then soft no voters and so, so on. And we really need to kind of understand that, you know, rather than thinking, why are people not agreeing with us? You know, why have people not come over to us? I even think it's just kind of a natural contrarian. I even think the words "Are you yes yet?" in a way, I, I think has an element of like I don't know, believing we are yeah. the ones completely in the right, or yeah. has an element of impatience in it, etc. Yeah. You know, that um, it had its point, but I think it's sometimes a bit a bit problematic. So yes, those detail issues matter, but there's but the wider psychological issues and indeed the philosophy of independence matters. I think just mm -hmm. as much. When you think back to the, again, the, the Brexit campaign that is seared into our minds, mm. you know, that kind of, here's a statement on the side of a bus. Now, whether or not it's a true statement, it, it kind of reduces your arguments into, they have to be a soundbite. Here's my soundbite, you're not going to have a pension. Where's your soundbite that says, yes, you are. And do you think there's any merit in having responses ready to those kinds of things? I think there are, just to say, because, I mean, you know, politics is like, you know, it's like three-dimensional chess or, you know, um, or, you know, some element of kind of conflict, etc., where you operate on many different levels. So while I'm all for 
politics of detail, work needing done, pluralism, you know, no monocultural Scotland, no singular argument, no singular story, um, something I cite as well as a problem, is at the same time, in a politics of combat uh, of ideas, one needs simplicity as well. So yeah. it's in terms of differential messages. So, and I quote a friend of mine saying this in the book, uh, this is someone who came from no to yes post-2014, and she said to me after 2014, and I cite this, that she had never seen a way into being political all her life, and then the independence referendum, kind of in retrospect, this is true of lots of people, she retrospectively judged that, that, that the independence referendum made her political and was this political education. And she said to me or, or, or on the record that the, the £350 million figure on the bus uh, about Brexit and the NHS was that kind of disinformation that, yeah. yes, needed to have similar arguments to... Because in the next independence referendum, you will have... £1,900 un union dividend on yeah. that bus, you know, you're yeah. going to lose that, you're going to lose Barnet, etc, etc. And we need to have similar figures as well. And there's an absence of that, which I think is partly the SNP being incumbents, is partly, there's an element of probably complacency as well. And one figure I do draw from that I, I haven't got the exact figure on, but I know the direction of travel, is Danny Dorling at Oxford University made the point that the UK economy is much, much bigger than the GDP figures. What he means is that the offshore economy, the tax havens, the, the, the shell companies, is, on his estimate, seven times the size of UK GDP. Wow. And he said to me that the Scottish figures, because that's obviously partly the city of London is a huge multiple of that, but the Scottish economy has similar financial centres, but smaller. And he said the Scottish economy would be four to five times the size of the GDP of Scotland. Now, for goodness sake, SNP researchers, Green Party researchers, you know, somebody, you know, somewhere, set up a committee or a commission and estimate it. Because if we could estimate that, value it, number it, the Scottish economy is, what, 180 billion GDP. So that would be four to five times size that. So think of the size, that could be nearly just a bit under one trillion or something. You know, that could be a huge, huge figure in terms of the economy. And that would be something that we could say then, one of the things we will do in independence is we will we will audit that and we will you know look at the relationships of those parts of the offshore Scottish economy to the domestic Scottish economy. I.e., let's not accept the framing of conventional economics. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that sounds like a good challenge to throw the way of believing Scotland or somewhere like that. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Leaflets. <laughs> I don't know if you if you watched the uh, opposition day debate that was on a couple of weeks ago, and we actually were playing. Um, Project Fear Bingo, and it was amazing how many of the these dog whistle phrases came up. You had the the SNP making quite impassioned speeches about their future vision, and then the opposition. But what about education? But what about this? And what about that? And I thought, God, is that the best you can do? <laughs> you could more or less remove about three quarters of what they came up with as either being irrelevant or vague and unsubstantiated or meaningless. Um, did any were... Did any of them come up with Ah? Abbott Ferries. I'm sure they would have done. But... Something I explore a bit in the book is that it's it's clear that you know the SNP are the are the kind of platform that that, that, that got us that amplified this debate, that gave voice to it, um, and the main vehicle, not the only one, of course. But then the SNP success brought independence, mainstream, and so on. But the effect of 15 years in office of a party, of any party, it's just the laws of political gravity. It has it has an effect. And, you know, the, the, the SNP has a record with shortcomings, with, you know, with, with issues. I mean, you know, one doesn't need to cite ferries, you know, education, <laughs> NHS, etc. And that, to me, is a little bit of, a, bit of a fundamental as well. 
in that when you're trying to present a future version of Scotland that then has a relationship with a party that is 15 years in government and has been an incumbent and dominant party for so long, that begins to become a bit of a problem because political parties and how they refresh and how they change in office, it, it's a problem. And I don't quite know how, 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 we, how we navigate that because as someone said to me after I finished the book, the SNP has to be a bridge here but not not the main the main vehicle of the future. They need to be a bridge from the present into the future. But how do we how do we aid them being a bridge rather than the the, yeah. the, the sole vehicle really? My vision of the, the future is that we've got a proportional representation gives us mm. that kind of rainbow parliament. Mm. And I would have thought that the SNP's main raison d'etre is over once we are independent. And I you know I would imagine that those parties would start splitting into here's our I don't know, liberal Democrats here, here's our socialist wing, here's our perhaps even a right wing wing, I don't know. So the idea that the SNP will be the only government we could ever have, I think is unlikely. But then that adds another element of what if for the people who aren't sure, doesn't it? I think a, the future politics of Scotland, independent wise, would be completely different in the sense that the SNP, an all independent nation, the, the party that brings about AIDS independence, remains for quite a period and often is the dominant party. But all the other parties would change in their characteristics. Yeah. You know, yeah. The Scottish Labour Party, which um, you know, I'm a small expert in, would become completely unashamedly a Scottish Labour Party. The Scottish Tories would change, obviously, from being, you know, they wouldn't be the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party. And, and again, the Scottish Liberal Democrats and how they, they stood and, and everyone. So... Everything about our politics would be changed, and that involves, like again, what I was talking about—you know, the psychological dimensions, the the philosophical dimension, the sociological dimension. All of those would change. But what I was mentioning earlier is, is a little bit about the SNP now, and that tension between being an incumbent party of government um, and then trying to present a future vision of Scotland, because the future vision of Scotland has to have a relationship with the, with the here and now in a way. It can't just be like, you know, we imagine a utopia, no one's suggesting that. So that has an element of tension in it and it gets more more acute the longer the SNP are in office 15 years and running. So maybe this would be a good point to cast our minds forward to how long is it likely to be before we get to referendum? <laughs> At the time we're recording this, we're a week before the, the yes. result of the court case coming out. Care to take a guess as to what the outcome is going to be? And we'll find out in a week's time if you were right. The nature of the Supreme Court judgment is going to be of colossal, colossal consequences, not just about independence, but perhaps even more so about the nature of the United Kingdom. Um, and about the nature of the union and how where power lies and so on. And I've always taken a, I've always taken a sanguine view about this. Is in that if the union says no in whatever forum, UK government, Supreme Court, by changing the nature of the United Kingdom and making independence synonymous with democracy, that is that is in the medium to longer term a disastrous position for the union to position itself in. And and it really begins is is begins to unravel and undermine um, the case for the union because ind independence is not yet completely synonymous with democracy in terms of like the you know large parts of soft soft opinion in Scotland but that makes it explicit and in, 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 in that sense even though the, it would change the nature of the union fundamentally and um, in a very very unappealing way 
uh, Scotland, they've got a whole chapter in the book on this, how Scotland um, gets to another another independence referendum. Scotland eventually gets to another independence referendum when on every measurement, Scottish public opinion wants one because Scottish public opinion, just a couple of arguments I go through in the book, Scottish public opinion by emphatic numbers likes the idea of Scotland's right to decide. It believes Scottish people have the right to decide their own future. So that, that's a kind of near consensus position. You then ask if the Scottish government's got a mandate to implement the mandate it claimed in 2021, majority of people say that is. But what people don't and are not yet at the moment is people do not, because of what we've gone through with COVID, um, Brexit as well, of course, and, and Ukraine, people do not want, at the moment, an independence referendum in the next two to three years. And when, when if that shifts through political discussion, that's that's when things begin to move and that may begin to move quite decisively um in how people interpret the supreme court judgment a union that says no that says this is not a voluntary union that you can leave when you want to leave changes the parameters of the debate oh, quite and it takes that, that word colony that we used earlier 40 years since the demise of the union it's right back today isn't it i personally wouldn't use that term but what it means you know, the united kingdom is a hybrid state that's that's the great argument pro-union people make all the time they even make the argument it's a union state it's a combination of either four nations or you know four um constituent parts because you can argue if northern ireland's a nation or not and it, it's it's a union up till now, it has been a union of consent. And what I try to say sometimes to pro-independence supporters, because in all the problems that are, you know, which are many, you know, democratic deficit, constitutionally, economically, the United Kingdom has at points had an adaptability, unlike the same more codified systems and federal systems, Spain being the example, is that when Scotland wanted a parliament in emphatic numbers, Scotland got a parliament, and obviously with the 79, you know, um, false show, um, and all that, and the ge and gerrymandering there. But in 97, when we voted by emphatic numbers, we got part, and when we wanted an independence referendum, we got an independence referendum mm -hmm. again. So there's this element of flexibility, and that I think is being turned on its head and 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 denied, and fundamentally remaking the United Kingdom in a way that will not serve the interests of the United Kingdom uh, well at all um, in in any 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 measurable um, uh, situation. Broke with Brexit as well, didn't it? We voted to stay in the EU and we didn't get our own way that way. So the answer from the Supreme Court is, uh, no, it's got to be, you can't do it yourself, it's got to be done through uh, Westminster, with an agreement through Westminster. Does that kind of, uh, maybe temporarily, but does that sort of shift the argument for independence to being one that's a wider one about civic rights? Yes, I, th I think it does. And, 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 it, and it, it goes to the core of that argument I said earlier, Scotland's right to decide. People people like the idea of Scotland's right to decide its collective future. And then about what the meaning of democracy is, because it's still true that in that long tail of the last time that the Scots voted for, for the Tories was 1959. They voted majority for them in 55 and then by a narrow plurality in 1959. But yet we've had, you know, 40 odd years of, of Tory governments. But yet still people, that acuteness, people don't quite feel it's like, a denial of democracy in the wider societal level. But if you're saying we as a nation cannot decide our, our self-government, cannot practice self-determination, that is something that is a fundamental and unilateral rewriting of the nature of, 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 of the union. And it doesn't mean to say, you know, Scotland, the Scottish government goes to the UN, somehow, you know, the, the principles of self-determination are legally complex, but it, it, it means the consent issue is fundamentally changed. And who, I, I, I mean, lots of us 
draw drawing them as an example here. Before the Supreme Court judgment, in in the, the, the evolution to this, um, Kieran Martin, who was the you know the lead negotiator for the UK government, the UK government, not the Scottish government, in 2014, he said he said two years ago that if you change the nature of the union to the UK government saying Scotland cannot practice self-determination, cannot have a route to legal independence, you are basically unilaterally changing the United Kingdom and you are basically unravelling its nature and that will not end well for the United Kingdom. And that was someone who was the lead negotiator of the UK government and he was profoundly right. One of the things I've tried to go over in, in, in Scotland Rising is to get into um, a more a more nuanced debate about about Scottish um, independence that is not about party politics. So this is not a defence or advocacy of SNP Scotland or SNP's version of independence. Not an advocacy for the for the Greens version of independence. And nor is it an, a critique of Westminster that's just driven by like the limitations of Labour and Tory governments. It's trying to say there's something much more important at work here. Something about the the, the different ideas of Scotland that are at a political, cultural, democratic uh, level. And really, we, we we've all got work to do here about about not just the, the version of independence, but how we are represented and represent ourselves. I was talking earlier about you know the limitations of some of our media, which is you know obvious in print media, play you know true in broadcast uh, media. This is a debate that is ongoing. In in, in many ways, I mean, I'm, I make this point explicitly in the book. We already are at the start of the next independence referendum campaign. You know, it's like it's like mm. God forbid, a terrible analogy. One of those never-ending American presidential <laughs> campaigns of which we they get longer. Um, and while while our last time our, our formal campaign was three years, we are. At a point now where that informal debate has already begun, there's no room for complacency of just thinking because of the successes that, that yes is automatically going to win, independence is automatically going to win. There's significant work needing done and understanding, as I've said several times, you know, the different gradations of Scotland um, at play in there and the different ways people, voters, think think of Scotland. And uh, it's, it's one contribution to hopefully a, a richer debate that will... Um, Aid, aid people in making making that right decision and respecting respecting others. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty profound on that. Of a you know, with most circumstances, you know, of trying to respect people. Um, I I disagree, which is sometimes pretty tough in this age of a uh, you know populous and disputatious politics. Yeah. It's definitely on my Christmas list, and I know yeah. that Marlene's already got her copy. <laughs> when I was doing an, an event in um, Gatehouse of Fleet, which is the office of Galway, just just a couple of miles from where I live. And um, and just before I went onto the stage at this uh, book festival, and uh, this Australian chap says to me, um, "Good luck with your nationalism," he says. <laughs> and I thought, I just yell. It was said friendly, but it was said cheekily, and a little bit of condescension is how I interpreted. And I said to him, "You know," I said, uh, "Thank you." I said, "I'm not a nationalist, by the way." I said, "I am a post-nationalist." I said, "Go and look it up." I said, "There's there's a whole lot <laughs> of white philosophy," and this is one of the things that that. that I, I do try and get over in the book, and, I, and, I, and so there's an ecumenicalness I try and make about this, that this should not be a debate just about Scottish nationalism versus British nationalism, because that, that debate actually crowds out an awful lot of people and an awful lot of voices in Scotland. For whatever the strengths of, of the richness of, you know, most of the tradition of Scottish nationalism, large parts of Scotland don't see themselves in, in that debate. And, uh, and there is a post-nationalism links into that thing about sharing sovereignties and operating with multiple identities around the world, particularly comes from post-colonial situation as well. But 
the, the, the institution that has most expressed post-nationalism in the whole world has been, not surprising, of course, the European Union. And it's just a nice way of framing because I think that, as I was saying earlier, if when Scotland decides and we become independent, that nature of UK stroke RUK, post-UK, whatever it's called, mm. is could be a post-nationalist creation that has a, you know, a, some some framework as well of cooperation, like the Nordics, like other regional arrangements. And I, I, I like the sound of that because it could be a useful contribution in a world of lots yes. of problems to how yeah. people get on in in a, and you know work in a different way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That was a great interview, wasn't it? I um, thoroughly enjoyed listening to yeah. Jerry there. Could have listened to him all afternoon. Uh, interesting what you said about uh, the Supreme Court case, wasn't it? You know, obviously oh. we were at that point, we were all three hoping it was going to be a yes, go ahead and have a referendum. But yeah, just interesting what you said about, you know, a sort of win-win situation where it's not the bit mm -hmm. of the win that we wanted, but it's uh, nevertheless, it's a, a turning point. So that's it for this week. We will have a bonus Tuesday episode coming up this Tuesday, which is a Women for India event, an interview with a Ukrainian refugee with a story of her experiences there. Should be very interesting. And then on Friday, we'll have the Radical Independence Campaign and Our Republic talking about their plans to mark the coronation of King Charles. So that could be fascinating. So don't forget to subscribe. Thanks for listening. As always, catch you later. Bye now. Bye Thank now. you. Bye.